So today we are hanging out in the book of Zephaniah. You probably read this uh, partway through this week, just gone. Um, and we're traveling through some of the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament before we jump in to the New Testament. Um, but today I just want us to spend a little bit of time talking about and hanging out together in the book of Zephaniah. So if you've got your Bible, grab your Bible, turn to Zephaniah. And um, we're just going to read chapter 1 together, okay? So here we go, Uh, chapter 1 of Zephaniah. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Amon, king of Judah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry hosts, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and those who also swear by Moloch, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent. Before the sovereign Lord. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market districts, all your Merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like the wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father God, that you're a God that speaks. Thank you, Father, that you're a God that longs us to hear, for us to hear your voice. 
And I just want to pray, Lord, that right now, as we talk and work and walk through Zephaniah 1, I pray that that would be true for us today. That by your spirit, we would hear your voice. That by your spirit, we would catch your heart. And that by your spirit, we would be woken up to new and deep levels of relationship with you. So come by your spirit now, Lord, and bring your word alive to us again, we pray. Amen. Great. <clears throat> so um, I don't know about you, but when I first read the um, chapter, well, first read chapter one of Zephaniah, uh, I was a little bit like, ah, <laughs> what is going on there? Um, and I just want to pull some of that out from, from the first few verses um, and just address some of that and ask, what was God actually saying to these guys? And what might God be saying to us today? So um, let's just look at verse two. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Verse three, I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. God's sweeping everything away you think like, what is going on and I don't know if you remember this uh but in Jeremiah chapter 4 let's just turn there um Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 23 I don't know if you remember us looking at this before but we we read this um together once before and we linked it back to Genesis chapter 1. So verse 23 of Jeremiah 4 says this, I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. You might remember we said that that phrase is the phrase tohu vavohu in the Hebrew. It's this phrase that is found in Genesis, which means wild and waste. And, and we carried on reading, it said, um, and at the heavens and their light was gone. You remember when God created the world, it says in Genesis 1 that the world was tohu vavohu. It was formless and empty. It was wild and waste. And then, then God created and he put light in the heavens. But here we see the light is gone. And then the mountains were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the anger uh, before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Now, um, I'm not going to preach again on that. You'll be pleased to know. If you want to check that out, go um, and uh, listen to that preach. Go find that preach on Jeremiah 4. Uh, but what we did say about that was this. We said that there was decreation happening. Do you remember? We were looking at that passage and everything that God had created in Genesis 1 was in reverse order, had been flipped around and the things had been taken from where they were supposed to be. We saw that decreation was happening. And decreation is a theme that runs through the prophets in the Bible. And so here in Zephaniah, we see decreation again. God sweeping away the birds of the air he's sweeping away the beasts of the field he's sweeping away the people that live on the earth there's this story of decreation which leads us to ask why 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 is God decreating what is going on why is God destroying everything that he made I thought he was a God of love I thought he was a God of grace I thought he was a God of hope I thought he was bringing new creation why is he decreating what is going on here why is this part of the narrative of the scriptures Great question. What is going on here? Now, in order to understand what is going on here, what we need to do uh, is pay a little bit more attention to the context. And I think sometimes we, I don't know about you, we can open the scriptures and we look in and we read a verse and we just think, oh my word, 
like the God of the Old Testament just is so angry and so full of wrath. And, and, the, and we get this story that the God of the New Testament is nice and loving and he's so different to the God of the Old Testament. But I want to show you today as we head towards the New Testament that this is the same God and the same heart of love and the same passion for his people that he's always had, which is why Jesus comes in the New Testament, which is why he comes and does what he does. So how do we get to the bottom of that? Well, what we need to do is to pay attention to what is actually happening. There's a phrase uh, that I've heard um, when I've been learning from people about the scriptures in years gone by is this, that a text out of context is a pretext. And I'll be honest with you, every time I hear that, I get the gist behind it. It means if you take something out of context, it doesn't really make sense. Um, but I was always like, what on earth is a pretext? And I still don't know. So, <laughs> uh, but I like to say it like this, a text out of context is a con. If you take the text out of context, you're left with a con. It doesn't make sense. It just is something that isn't true. Um, and so we need to keep this text in its context. And what is its context? Well, it's Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. And it says this, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, uh, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So we know that whatever is going on here in Zephaniah chapter 1 is happening during the reign of Josiah. Okay, Let's go back and see what was going on during the reign of Josiah. So turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And there you find King Josiah. Now, Israel and Judah, they had had this long list of bad kings. And these kings, they kept turning people away from the Lord, chasing after other gods. And then we get Josiah and he's this young king, eight years old when he became king. And verse 2 tells us this. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. What we've got here is a king that said to the nation of Judah, we're going to follow Yahweh. We're going to turn back to our God and we're not going to turn to the right or to the left. We're going to keep our eyes fixed on him and we're going to chase after him. You think, wow, yes, like yes. So that begs the question then, if Josiah led the nation of Judah back to God, why in Zephaniah is God getting in an angry fit of rage and destroying everything? Like surely that's what God wants, right? He wants his people to turn back to him. He wants them to come after him and to chase after him, have a relationship with him. That's the God that he is. So why is God just freaking out and destroying everything? Let's keep reading in 2 Chronicles 34. Let's read what Josiah did, okay? So Josiah turns back to the Lord and Zephaniah is prophesying at this time. And then here's what happens from verse 3. <clears throat> In the eighth year of his reign, so he became king when he was eight and somewhere between becoming king when he was eight and when he became 16, eight years later, he decided we're going to chase after God. And, and at this point, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. In his 12th year, he began to purge, hold on to that word, to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles and idols. Under his direction, the altars of Baal were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed 
sacrifice to them, he burned, hold on to that word, he burned the bones of the priests on their altars. And so he purged Judah and Jerusalem in the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim and Simeon, as far as Naphtali and in the ruins around them. He tore down the altars and the Asherah poles and crushed the idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem. Then he went back to Jerusalem. You see uh, what was going on here. He, <clears throat> he chose God. He said, Yes, Yahweh, we're following after you. We're coming back to you. You are our God. You are our king. You're the one that we want. And then Zephaniah is speaking into that, what God is saying. And it results in uh, the king, Josiah, purging Israel of all the idols and images. Now, let's connect these two and what's actually going on. Jump with me to Romans chapter 1. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 1, I'm just going to read from verse uh, 21 to 23. For although they, this is the people of God, okay, this is the Israelites, though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Okay, so we we know uh, that during the, the reign of Josiah, or up until that point, these people who had known God, who had walked with God, this is the God that led them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, through the wilderness for 40 years, providing for them every step of the way. They knew this God. He led them into the promised land and they conquered and took this land and now they were settled in it. Okay, they knew knew this God, even though they knew him, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, for idols, for images, for idols made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. What's going on in Zephaniah? When God is sweeping away, uh, he's sweeping away both man and beast. He's sweeping away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. What's he doing? He's using Josiah, the king, to sweep away from them all these images, all these idols. He's not actually destroying the world. He's using this imagery of decreation and he's saying, I'm going to decreate the world that you have created so that you can live in the world that I have created. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you're really choosing me. You really want me. You want to know me. You want to walk in Eden in peace and love and joy and hope with me again. I want that for you too. That is my deepest longing. That's why I created you. And he says, yes, yes, I want that for you. And so if you really want that, then first we need to decreate everything else you've created. We need to remove the birds that you have set up as statues. We need to remove the beasts that you've set up as statues. We need to remove the images of other human beings that you have set up as statues because they will not have anywhere to live in my world because you're not going to be subject to these false gods and idols anymore. I want you to live free in love and joy and know me as your father and your king and your God. I'm going to decreate the world that you have created so that you can live in the world that I have created for you. That's what he's saying. And you know, God's saying this to them. He's like, there's no room in my world to be, for, for me to be shared with these other things. You can have me or you can have them. So if you're choosing me, we're going to get rid of all of that stuff. Because then you can have all of me 
and I'll have all of you. You, you see that um, in, in the next few verses where God just says, like in verse 5, he's, he's saying, um, he, he talks about those who swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remove them. You can't swear by both of us. You can't have that God and me as God. You can only have one God. Am I going to be it? Are you really serious about me being your God? Because if you are, we've got some work to do. There's some decreation that needs to happen. And we need to remove these things. Now, I, I, I want to just jump down to verse 18. So if you jump down to verse 18 with me. Um, the second half of verse 18, we'll deal with the first half in just a second. Um, but the second half says this. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed. For he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. <clears throat> you say, okay, Matt, well, a moment ago, you were saying he wasn't destroying the whole earth. He was just decreating their world so that he could recreate the world that he wanted them to live in. But this verse clearly seems to say that he's destroying the whole earth. How do you marry that up? Well, back to the Hebrew. Uh, that word earth or whole earth, which is translated there in the original Hebrew is the word Eretz. And Eretz, two things about that word. Eretz in the Hebrew, it, it means land. Okay, so the first thing that you need to know is that we read this and we think the whole world. But a Hebrew reader would read this and they would read the word Eretz. They would read the word land. And the word land was this trigger word. Okay, it, me it was loaded. It meant something. Because land, the word land is directly connected to the promise that God gave to Abraham. He promised Abraham a people in a land, in an Eretz. I'm going to give you this land and your ancestors are going to live here and be as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'm going to give you this land. So actually the first thing to say is that if we're reading this and the original Hebrew and we're getting into the mind of the people that are listening to, to Zephaniah give the word of the Lord, they're not thinking God's about to destroy the whole world. They're thinking about the land of Israel. They're thinking about this land, this promise that God had given them that they could live in and dwell in and know him in. It was their new Eden. It was the place of hope and peace, <clears throat> the place of love and joy, the place of relationship with their God. And God's saying, it's not been that anymore. So I'm about to burn it all up. I'm about to decreate it. Why? Because he's faithful to his promise. Because he wants them to live in a land that is flowing with milk and honey. He wants them to live in a land that is flowing with joy and peace, with love and grace. He wants them to live in that land. And what they've made this land is no longer that. So first of all, he needs to purge it. Remember that word from 2 Chronicles with Josiah? He needs to purge it so that it can become that again, because he is faithful to his promise, because he's not going to neglect the promise that he made to Abraham, and he will see it through to completion. That's the first thing to say about that. The second thing is this, that the word Eretz, with all Hebrew words, they have a root word, and the root word for the word Eretz, it literally means... Um, it literally means a firm foundation. It, it literally means to be firm. Okay, so you can imagine this is how we get the idea of land because it's something we can stand on. It's firm. And God's saying, all that you have, uh, have made that you think is your firm foundation, it is not. And I'm about to show you that because I want you to have a true firm foundation. Let's jump back up to the first half of that verse, okay? Verse 18, the first half says this, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them 
on the day of the Lord's wrath. Let's just talk about that word wrath, okay? Um, because God's, we, we recognize now this is the land. It's specific to Israel. They know, or to Judah, they know what he's talking about. It's not just destroying the whole world. But this idea of God's wrath, hang on, Matt. A minute ago you were saying this was about love and, and God's um, father heart for his people. What's this wrath about? And, and I just want to, again, take you back to the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for wrath that, that's translated as wrath here is the word ebrah. Okay, Abra. And, and, and it can be translated as wrath, but its literal translation is overflow. That, that's, that's what it means. Okay, so on the day of the Lord's overflow, it, it means an outburst of passion. So you can see how it can become translated as wrath. Okay, if used in a negative context, it can be this outburst of passion, which can seem like wrath. But what this is really saying is God is saying, I, I love you so much. That I'm not going to let you carry on destroying this. I am so committed to you and to the promise that I have made to you through Abraham to see your good, to see you live in a land that flows with milk and honey, that I am overflowing with wrath. I'm overflowing with anger about what is going on and I'm going to do something about it. I'm that committed to you that I will not just stop and let this carry on. I must do something about it. And you might remember a couple of weeks ago, um, I was preaching from Daniel chapter 1, and and, and in that we talked about how love and what it really is in in the Bible and how anger can actually be an appropriate response that flows out of biblical love when something negative is happening to those that you have chosen to love. If you you missed that, let me encourage you to go back and check that out. That's the the preach just before Easter um, on Daniel chapter 1. Go have a listen to that one. Uh, But yeah, that's what's going on here. Out of the overflow of who he is and his love for his people, he is going to do something and uphold his promise. So let's bring that back to us. (laughs) Uh, What is going on for us? What do we get from this? Well, I believe that God loves us like he loves these guys. And I believe that he wants the best for us like he wants for them. And as a church, we're saying, yes, we want to make Jesus first above everything else. We want, like Josiah, to turn back to God and say, you are first and foremost. And we're not going to turn to the right or to the left. We're going to fix our eyes on you. Well, what that means is that if we're serious about that, us corporately and individually, if we are serious about him being in our lives, then there are going to be some things in our lives that may need to be removed. There's some deconstruction uh, of the world that we have built, uh, have built some, some decreation that's going to need to happen in order for us to step fully into the created world that he longs for us to live in. So what are those things? What, um, what's our foundation? What's the firm ground that we've been standing on that maybe isn't what God intended it to be? What uh, has God given us that we have exchanged for other things. What are the, the birds of the air, uh, the fish of the sea, the, the beasts and the human beings, the idols, the images that we have now turned our attention towards, that we have filled our land with, our lives with? Uh, I wonder, I was just dwelling on this, and you can ponder this for your own life and ponder it for our church. Pray about it. Ask God to show you, because we need to see, because we really do need to remove this stuff if we want to see God's kingdom come. Um, so, what could these things be? Um, I was just dwelling on this fish, 
Okay, so I was thinking, hey, what, what are our idols? What are our fish idols today? And, and fish, they kind of go with the current, don't they? They get caught up in the flow of something. Um, and I was thinking, you know, maybe the idols of fish that we have today could be when we get caught up in the flow of the current of culture, when we choose to go with culture over the word of God, when we choose to flow with what's happening around us rather than what the Lord is saying, when we make that king rather than the word of God, rather than God himself and his heart for us. Uh, another thing could be feelings. When we flow with our feelings, our feelings flow from our gut, don't they? The Bible talks about that. Um, we've talked about that before. But when we make that the final word rather than his word, actually that becomes an idol. That becomes something we serve rather than something that we are in control of under his kingship. What are the fish idols? What about the, uh, the bird idols? I was thinking about how birds fly above us. I don't know about you. Um, <laughs> I love superheroes. And if I could have one superpower, it would definitely be to fly. Like Superman is my ultimate superhero. And I would love to be able to fly. <clears throat> and uh, birds, they fly. There's this thing that we're never going to do unless we're in a plane or unless we're free falling, but that's not flying. Um, but I was thinking about how birds, bird idols in our culture, that this thing where we are, we're looking up always. I want to be up there. I want to reach for that thing that is out of reach. And that is it all the time. Now I'm not saying it's bad to have goals and dreams. It is absolutely not to have uh, bad to have visions and goals and dreams. But when those things that we reach for that are unobtainable become the thing that make, um, that, that influence in the decisions that we make in our lives. When they become the thing that is the deciding factor in how we live and what we do, they've become an idol. The unobtainable things up there. Uh, what about the, the beasts? Okay, the animals, the beasts of the field. I was thinking probably these things, uh, they relate a little bit to um, kind of power uh, or uh, wealth um, because... The things that we feed on, like the, the beasts represents animals, you know, and we back in the day, they would um, trade in these things. Uh, they, they, I don't know about if you, if you, you go to a restaurant, um, if I'm choosing a steak, I want the nicest steak. Don't you know? You, I want the most expensive one. and I, I want it cooked really, really well. <laughs> like not well done. I'm, I probably go rare, but I want it cooked so good. And, and, and I think like the beasts, they represent our, our want, our need uh, to have power, to control. So, like what are the things in our world today where we, we want that kind of stuff? We've made that more important than what God offers us. We've traded the image of the immortal God for these images of these beasts. Humans, the images of humans. Um, that's simple, isn't it? I mean, that's when we look around and I look at that person and I think, I compare myself to them and I think, I'm, I'm never going to be that good. I want to be them. I want to be like them. And God's like, yeah, but I made you and I love you and you are perfect in my eyes. But I want to be like them. And then we, we don't think we're any good. And that, that they become an exalted image. And who they are has power over who I am and how I live and what I do. Um, maybe you get caught up in your social media feed and your Instagram feed and you're looking at other people's perfect uh, images of their lives and you're like, oh, if only it was like that raising my kids. If only me and my wife were that loving towards one another. If only, but I don't know, you fill in the blanks. If only I had that car or that house. Like we make human beings our idols. What are the birds, the fish, the humans, the beasts in our world? Um, 
How do we know if we have set idols up that actually need to be decreated? Well, let's just go through Zephaniah and pull out a few things. Uh, so just a few things that stood out to me as we were going through them. Um, let's just jump down to verse 7. We're going to go through a couple of these verses now from verse 7 to 13. Uh, but verse 7, it says this. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. How do we know if we've set up idols that we've reshaped the world that God has given us and God needs to decreate in our life if we really want him? Here are a couple of ways. One, verse seven. One is this. It might be that we have the idols of work and purpose. You know, this says here, that God is already at work. Be silent, be still, rest in his presence. There's no need to be busy with idol worship. There's no need to be busy preparing and making yourself acceptable uh, through the things that you do, through work, through purpose, through family, whatever it is that you are working at, not just a job, but you are working at in your life to make it appear that you are presentable to God. You don't need to do anything to be presentable. You don't need to do anything to show that you are good enough because he has prepared the sacrifice and he has consecrated those he has invited. He has made you holy. You are pleasing to him because of who he is and what he has done. You know, he has already proven that you mean everything to him, that you mean everything to him. He's already proven it. By coming and dying on the cross to tell you that he loves you. He's already done it. There's nothing left for you to prove. He's already proven that he loves you to the end. That he loves you. That he loves you. That he loves you. You can stop striving. You can stop working to show that you have worth. You can stop striving to show that you have value. You can stop striving to show that you're lovable. Because he already loves you. Okay, so maybe that's an idol. Maybe you notice in your life that you are working to make this stuff happen. Do you know what? God's already made the world that he wants you to live in and there's nothing left to do. It is finished. Uh, verse eight, let's read that. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons, all those clad in foreign clothes, all those dressed up in foreign clothes. Um, the word uh, in Hebrew, that's translated as clothes here, it doesn't just mean, oh, thrown on my shirt, okay? This word for clothes, it literally means vestments, okay? It, me it means ceremonial robes. And are they particular ceremonial robes? Yes. Here it says foreign vestments, foreign ceremonial robes. So, so robes that actually belong outside of God, robes that actually belong to the world, um, and I wonder, like, again, coming back to culture, are you dressing up in the robes that culture says you need to be wearing? Are you dressing up to look the right part as the culture says you should be? Do you know what I, I love about the scriptures? Um, when you go check out the priest and the high priest who wore all these fancy robes when they're doing their business, okay, um, trying to fit in, or if we are trying to fit in with, with the culture and, and the ritual and all that kind of thing. But, but when the priests went into the presence of God on the most, in the most holy place on that atonement day once a year, do you know what they wore? They did not wear fancy robes. They took off all the fancy robes and they wore plain 
linen. You can read about that in Leviticus. You can read about it in Exodus. You can even read about it in Ezekiel's vision of the temple and what the priests were going to do there. When you, when you go in to the presence of God, you don't need to dress up. You don't need to put on anything. You don't need to appear any certain way. You just come as you are because it's all about him. Um, so if you find yourself trying to dress up in, 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 the, in the ceremonial robes of our culture, then that's an idol. Stop trying to do that. Stop trying to appear a certain way. Stop trying to fit in with society and the rituals that they say and know that you don't need to do what anybody else is telling you to do. You just come to him as you are, as you Ah, let's keep reading. Verse nine. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. Now, there are two ways that this verse can be translated. So I'm, I'm just going to give you uh, a thought on both of those ways. So, so literally, as it's translated here in the NIV, um, it could be translated like that. All who avoid stepping on the threshold. Okay, cast your mind back to 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, and you will uh, either go look it up or you'll remember the story of the Ark of the Covenant being carried off uh, by the enemies of Israel and placed in the temple of their God, who was called Dagon. And while the Ark of the Covenant was in there, the presence of God dwelt on the Ark of the Covenant. You've got God in this temple of this other God. And there's this big statue of Dagon in his temple. And overnight, when everybody's left, God just kicks him over. (laughs) And Dagon falls down and smashes to pieces on the threshold of the temple. Because of that, the Philistines uh, who worshipped this God, they They created this culture, this ritual, where when they came into the temple of their God, they no longer stepped on the threshold, they stepped over it, because on the threshold, their God smashed to pieces. Um, And the first thing I want to say is this. Um, How do you know if you've created an idol? Well, because you think that you have to come to God uh, in a way that other people tell you to. That you have to come to God based upon things that have been handed down, uh, either from our culture out there or from our long history of all kinds of religiousness that actually isn't in the scripture, this tradition that's handed down. And so God's saying, you know, no, like, I want to do away with this idea that you have to step over the threshold. Like you can come boldly into my presence, the Bible says, boldly into my presence. If you are tiptoeing over things in your life to try and get to God because you've been made to feel bad about X, Y, or Z that you have done, that is not the message of the gospel. That is not the message of the gospel. I need to tiptoe over my sin, try and push that aside so that God doesn't know about it and creep in and maybe stand at the back in his presence. No, no, no. God says, come boldly into my presence come boldly into my presence another way that this verse could be translated is that the word in the hebrew that is translated here as avoid stepping on the threshold uh, can actually also be translated to leap over so god's saying hey uh, one translation of the bible says uh, that god's gonna punish those who leap over and if you 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 read commentaries about this, they connect it with the next line that talks about violence and deceit. And they're saying that this idea of leaping over, it is to do with forcible entry, okay? So forcing your way in, forcible invasion into the presence of God. Now, some people will tiptoe over and be so scared to come into the presence of God. We can come boldly with confidence because of who he is. But there's another way that people come. And this is another form of idol worship. It's not actually worship of Jesus. Uh, it's when we come 
Not because of who he is, but because of who we are. And man, do I hear that in our society when they talk about Christianity and, and, and it's in the church now. But this idea that, well, if God is real, then he should act like this. Why? Because that's how I feel. Because that's what I say. Because that's my worldview. So I'm going to come boldly before God, but not boldly in confidence because of who he is, but forcibly invade. Come in and demand that your God responds to me the way that I want to. If you're coming before God and you're saying, God, I want this and I want you to do that and I want you to, to treat me like this and I don't, I don't care what you said before, this is how I am going to take it. And that's arrogance and pride. That's another idol. That isn't, that's leaping over the threshold into the presence of God. No, no, no. You're invited to come boldly before him with reverence and confidence in who he is and what he has done. Not in what we have done. We've got no leg to stand on when we come before him. He is holy. He is amazing. We, we are human beings who have fallen and sinful. But because of who he is, we can come boldly into his presence. Okay, um, we're nearly there. Let's keep going. Um, so we're going to jump down to verse 12. But let me just give you a little bit of context from verses 10 and 11. So verses 10 and 11 they uh, talk about a cry going up from the fish gate. Now, the fish gate was near the fish market, okay? So this gateway into the market, into this trading place. Uh, wailing from the new quarter, okay? The new quarter is this new bit of Israel, uh, of, of, sorry, of Jerusalem that was built. Like, it's like the fancy new housing section, you know? Kind of all the new builds and the expensive houses and that kind of thing. So that's that's that. Um, a loud cry from the hills, <clears throat> Well, you who live in the market district. Okay, so again, trading, finance, market. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. So there's this thing here about money and, and this new housing identity, status, finance, power, wealth, all that kind of thing going on. Now let's read verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. How do we know if we have made an idol uh, that needs to be decreated? Well, possibly we've become complacent in our faith. Possibly we've got to the point where we don't believe that God will do anything good or bad. He's just this nice, doesn't do much God that we call Father, and one day we'll get to be in heaven with him. What does that even mean if he's a God that doesn't do good or bad? Because... We've become complacent because we've become, we've become the kind of people that trust in our own finance, in our own business, in our own status, in where we live and what we do. Um, and I think probably that's something that is a real big challenge for us in the church in the West. I, I wonder sometimes if we don't see God do good because we haven't given him thanks for the good that he's already done for us. Because we come to a point where well, we don't recognize that's God at work anymore. You know, we just think, well, that was us. That was us giving our money. That was us fixing that situation. But it's only by the grace of God that you've got that money to give in the first place. It's only by the grace and the favor of God that we've got the wisdom or the skills to do that in the first place. But we fail to give him praise and thanks for the small things. And therefore, we don't see him do the big things. And so we start to develop this cultural narrative that I think exists in the church today. Well, well, we've got a God that doesn't do good or bad. He's just nice. We don't think he's going to do either. We've become complacent. 
because we've rested more on the idols of security and wealth and our identity and, and all of that stuff rather than on who he is. God says that cannot stand in your life if you want me in it. That's got to go. That's got to go. Okay, verse 13. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. You see, what's going on here is that these people have got to the point where they've, they're working and working and working. They've built all this stuff, but they're not living in it. This is another way we know that actually God hasn't been king of our lives. Idols have been king of our lives. If you feel like you're just constantly working, but you're never resting in what you've built. If you feel like you're constantly working, but you're never enjoying the fruit of what you've done, then there's something wrong there. There's something wrong there. You see, God wants us to live in the houses that we've built with him. He wants us to rest. And he wants us to enjoy the fruit of the work that we are doing. Uh, Often in the Bible, wine is symbolic of the spirit and symbolic of joy. It's symbolic of joy. And and I I would say to you this, church, if, if you don't, Uh, live in rest and in joy. And that doesn't mean that we don't struggle with things. That doesn't mean that hardships don't come our way. That doesn't mean that we don't work and and, and, engage in life. That's not talking about laziness here. I'm talking about rest, shalom. And I'm not talking about surface happiness here. I'm talking about joy, that deep sense of knowing that we are loved and we are his. And it doesn't matter what comes our way because we have that hope and that joy in him. I'm talking about that. If you don't have that, if you're not living in a place of rest and a place of joy, then the chances are Jesus hasn't been king fully of your life. And there are some other idols that are set up that God is going to want to bring down because he wants you to know rest and joy. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you haven't experienced that, then you haven't come to Jesus yet. And I want to encourage you, come to him. Come to him. Come to him. Know that rest. Let him pour out his spirit into your life and know that joy. I'm going to wrap up by jumping forward to chapter three. I want to just read to you from verse eight. It says this, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. Hear that. Wait for me, declares the Lord. Wait. Just wait. Invite me in and wait. I'm going to do something amazing in you if you invite me in. But you need to stop running around. Stop trying to worship these idols. Stop trying to hold up your ritual. Stop trying to get dressed up in the things that you think you need to be dressed up in. Just stop and wait and let me in. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations to gather the kingdoms and pour out my... uh, Pour out my abroad, my overflow, to pour it out, to pour out my wrath on them, my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Now, uh, you think, hang on a minute, Matt. Oh, just a second ago, you were saying this is all about God um, decreating to recreate, but here he's pouring out the fire of his jealous anger. What, what, what is going on there? 
Keep reading. Verse 9. Then, so after the pouring out of, of the fire of his jealous anger, then I will purify the lips of the people that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. Like, wow. Okay, this fire isn't burning everything up and destroying everything. No. It's cleansing and purifying and it's creating a new world where new life can spring up, where people can call on the name of the Lord. They can have relationship with him and they can stand shoulder to shoulder in community in this new creation that he is creating. That's what this is about. That's what this is about. It goes on. Um, Verse uh, 17 says this, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. He will rejoice over you with singing church. That's God's heart. His father heart is to rejoice over you with singing, to just to pour out his love on you, to overflow with joy and grace and love over you. That's his heart. Will you be like Josiah today? Will you invite him in and not turn to the right or to the left, but invite him in? If you do, then first up, there are going to be some things that God's going to want to decreate. There are some things in our lives that God's going to want to remove because he will not be shared. He will not be shared because he wants you to know his rest and his joy. He wants to transform you into something, into a land, into a people that he can sing over, that he can sing over. That is his heart. The message of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament is a God of grace and a God of love and a God of mercy and a father to the world. That's who he is. But he will not be shared. Because he knows that he is the best for us. And he wants you to have all of him. And he wants all of you. So if we truly want that, if we truly want that rest, we truly want that joy, we truly want to experience the love of the Father being sung over us, then we must invite him in. And we must let him decreate the worlds that we have created so that we can live in the world that he has created.